I have the great privilege of introducing our speaker for our retreat. Uh, his name is Reverend Dr. Jonathan Gibson. Uh, he is an associate professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. Gibson previously served as associate minister at Cambridge Presbyterian Church in England. Uh, he has written many books, uh, but many of you are probably most familiar with the book, The Moon is Always Round. So I think all of our families with children have read that book, and we've been so blessed by it. Um, if you've been with me for, I don't know, I think a lot of you have known for over 10 years. So over the 10 years, and then when we planted this church, it's four and a half years ago, uh, our services have started to change. Uh, we want it to be a reformed church. We want it to be a biblical church, a confessional church. And um, one of the formative books uh, that have helped me to kind of uh, put together our liturgy is actually from a book by Dr. Gibson called Reformation Worship. I had it in my office, and then one day Sam comes in. He's like, hey, that's my professor. <laughs> I was like, what? And so uh, we have many reasons to be thankful for Dr. Gibson joining us tonight. Um, and so I think it is a great privilege that we can have him speak the word to us this weekend. And also um, very thankful for God, to God, for really bringing us up uh, to where we are now. So uh, let's welcome Dr. Gibson as he comes. Let, let's pray. God, we just want to thank you so much for your servant. And we thank you, God, that um, you have used him in su such a powerful way to bless our families, to even use a children's book that he wrote to catechize our children, to learn what it means to, to trust in your promises, to know that you are good, that you are always good, and to even have um, just the works that he's written bless our church in so many different ways, informative ways, um, just pushing us back to your word, helping us to fall in love with your word as well. And Lord, tonight as he speaks, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, emp would empower him, give him boldness, and may he speak with clarity, may he speak in truth and in love, O oh God. And we as Listeners of your word, help us to be like the Bereans, just eagerly expectant and just waiting to just read the scriptures even more as the word is uh, proclaimed, preached, expounded. We thank you, Lord, and empower your servant tonight as he gives us the truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Warm welcome. Uh, it's good to be with you this weekend. Thank you to Eugene and uh, Sam for the warm invitation. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I'm uh, not from New Jersey. Uh, I'm from Texas. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, I'm from uh, Northern Ireland uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. So that's where the accent is from, if you're wondering. Uh, and I'm doing my best. been living in America here nearly five years, and I'm doing my best to hold on to it. So uh, um, it's uh, wonderful to be with you this weekend. Uh, I thought what we would do is we would make our way through the book of Philippians, at least up to the middle of chapter 2. So we're going to have four talks on the book of Philippians, and this evening we're going to begin with Philippians chapter 1 and uh, verse 1 to 11. And I'm going to do two sermons on this section, so tonight 
Uh, you'll be glad to know they're not both tonight. Uh, first one's tonight, second one's tomorrow morning. Okay. So, as we come to God's Word, let us uh, hear the Word of the Lord, beginning with Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of and praise of God. Will you pray with me? Father, in your light we see light, and so I pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see Jesus, and having seen him, we might love him more dearly, follow him more nearly, and see him more clearly. And we ask all of this in his name who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. A call to spiritual reformation. A call to spiritual reformation. This is the title of one of the best modern-day treatments on prayer. It's written by Don Carson. It was published in the 1990s, and still to this day, Carson says that it is one of the most important books he's ever written. Uh, the fact that he's written over 50 books puts that statement in its context. Carson opens the book by asking this question, what is the urgent need in the church of the West today? What is the urgent need in the church of the West today? He lists a number of pressing issues and concerns, such as sexual purity, abortion, financial integrity, evangelism, discipleship, theological training. But none of them qualify as the urgent need in the church today, in his view. Rather, he concludes that the urgent need of the church today is a knowledge of God that comes through prayer. Knowing God through prayer. He writes, we have learned to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves into the media, develop strategic evangelistic strategies, 
and administer discipleship programs, but we have forgotten how to pray. We have forgotten how to pray. Let me ask you a rather intrusive question. How is your prayer life going? Whatever age or stage you're at, whether you're at school or college, uh, whether you're middle-aged or retired, how's your prayer life going? Personally, I find prayer one of the hardest things to do in my Christian life, and I say that as a Christian minister. Besides cultivating the discipline to pray, one of the paralyzing things about prayer so often that I find is that I don't know how to pray or what to pray. Perhaps like me, you can identify with the writer of the uh, anonymous uh, poem. They tell me, Lord, that when I seem to be in speech with you, since but one voice is heard, it's all a dream, one talking, one talker aping two. Sometimes it is, yet not as they conceive, rather I Seek in myself the things I'd hoped to say, but lo, my wells are dry. But lo, my wells are dry. Is that you? Are the wells of your prayer life dry? Is that true of your church? Are the wells of your church prayer meeting dry? Well, this sermon this evening isn't supposed to be something that is given to depress you further in your prayer life, because we all struggle with prayer. Uh, I haven't come this weekend to make you feel more guilty uh, about your prayer life. Rather, what I hope and pray is that this sermon may help our prayer lives rather than hinder or paralyze our prayer lives. And I say that because if we are Christians, then prayer is not an optional extra in the Christian life. It's an essential in our Christian lives. And that's why we have to address our prayer lives and be honest with them, be honest with ourselves what our prayer lives are really like. Uh, We cannot survive or function or flourish as Christians unless we pray. Uh, J.I. Packer once said, I believe that prayer is the measure of a person spiritually in a way that nothing else is, so that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Well, in these opening words of Philippians, Paul gives us a number of insights into prayer and how we might pray. He gives us four aspects of prayer that hopefully can help us in our prayer lives. Number one, the context of prayer, Christian community, the context of prayer. Christian community. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These opening words are common to all of Paul's letters, and so often we just skip over them because they're so common. But there is a profound insight here for understanding prayer. Because in verses 3 to 11, Paul will speak about prayer and say how he prays for the Philippians, but he sets it in the context of Christian community. Christian prayer arises out of the context of Christian community. 
The community is established by visible and invisible relations. The visible relations are obvious. There's Paul and Timothy, and they're writing to the church in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony in the northeast of Greece, uh, which Paul visited on his second missionary journey. It was a bustling city with a wide variety of gods and cults. It was multicultural, multi-religious, not unlike a metropolitan city like New York or Jersey City or Trenton. There were altars and temples to Greek gods. There were sanctuaries to gods from Egypt. And there was a small Jewish community, uh, though there was no synagogue. And Paul's practice when he entered a new city was to go to the synagogue and preach the gospel there first to the Jews and then reach out to the Gentiles. But in this case, when he arrived in Philippi, there was no synagogue. And so on the Sabbath, he went outside the city to the riverside where a small group of Jews had gathered for prayer. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. And after that evangelistic um, occasion by the riverside in Philippi, and in the subsequent days, there were three converts. Do you remember them? Lydia, the rich businesswoman, a Gentile fearer. Then there was the demon-possessed slave girl, basically a young girl who had been trafficked into prostitution. And third, there was the Philippian jailer. So the first members of the church in Philippi were a rich businesswoman, a young prostitute, and a prison guard. And from these three converts and their families, uh, a Christian community sprung up. And Paul writes to them years later, when he himself is in prison in Rome awaiting the death penalty. It's about A.D. 60 or 62. So the context for Paul's prayer is a visible Christian community. That's who he's writing to. That's who he's connected to. That's the context out of which his prayer in verses 3 to 11 arises. It's not a private prayer just for himself in prison. It's a public prayer for Christians living in a particular place in Philippi. But it's not just any community of people that he's praying for. Muslim and Hindu communities have been praying for centuries. So what's unique about this community of people that Paul is praying for? Well, they are Christians. That's seen by the invisible relations. There are the visible relations, Paul and Timothy and these people living in Philippi, but there are invisible relations that make this community not just any community, but a Christian community. Look again at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Servants of Christ, saints in Christ. Both titles refer to invisible relations. As Paul and Timothy traveled around ministering to different churches, they didn't wear badges with the title Servants of Christ on them. They didn't dress differently. They dressed just like everyone else did in the first century. Uh, There was nothing in public that made Paul and Timothy stand out to any other Abraham blogs or Cornelius blogs. Yes, they were servants of Jesus Christ, but it was an invisible relationship that existed between them and Christ. 
Same with the Christians in Philippi. They were called here saints in Christ Jesus. But again, there was nothing in the way they dressed or what they wore that identified them any different. There's nothing in the Scriptures about Christians walking around with what would Jesus do bracelets on their arms or Jesus' Lord badges on their clothes. And yet, they were united by faith to Jesus Christ. It was an invisible relationship that existed between them and Christ. And that's what makes this a Christian community, not just any community. Servants of Jesus Christ writing to saints in Jesus Christ. The Christian aspect is reiterated in Paul's greetings in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just any old greeting. It's a Christian greeting. Grace, God's unmerited favor toward us. Peace connects us with the Old Testament concept of shalom, wholeness, especially in the context of relationships. Grace to you, unmerited favor to you, and peace, wholeness from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 3 to 11, Paul will present his prayer for the Philippians as a model for our own prayer life. But I want you to know or note the context in which that prayer arises. Prayer arises in the context of Christian community. Visible relationships between Christians who all have an invisible relation to Christ. Servants of Christ and saints in Christ This is the context out of which prayer arises. Now, why have I taken the time to point out the obvious? Well, I've taken the time to mention this because too often as Christians, we tend to think of prayer in pietistic or individualistic terms, mainly in private or personal terms. I mean, when I asked you how your prayer life was going, uh, where did you picture yourself? On your own, with your Bible, praying, perhaps in the car, or at the church prayer meeting. Now, certainly, prayer involves personal and private prayer, uh, but prayer is also, and I would argue primarily, something we do together, something we do for each other. In other words, it's hard to be a proper Christian, invisibly united to Jesus Christ, and not be visibly united with saints in Christ Jesus. That is, not be visibly united to a church that prays together. A number of years ago, I had a friend who told me that he and his wife had decided to stop going to church and to just stay at home on Sundays and read their Bible and pray together. So I thought I'd send him a quote by an early church father called Cyprian. And it went like this. We cannot have God as our Father if we do not have the church as our mother. We cannot have God as our Father if we do not have the church as our mother. Why? Because it is in the context of Christian community that we are fed and nourished by our mother, the church. A lonesome Christian or a lonesome Christian couple doing their own thing 
is an oxymoron. It's, it's a bit like two thumbs bouncing down the street together on their own, detached from the body. How weird would that be? And yet that's what some people think they can do, stay away from church to just read their Bibles and pray on their own at home. If we are united to Jesus Christ, then we are united to other Christians. Union with Christ is an invisible thing, but it manifests itself in visible relationships with other Christians. Invisible union with Christ, visible union with Christians. And that is the context out of which prayer arises. So it's a simple point, but it's a profound and important point. Christian prayer cannot be cultivated outside the context of Christian community. So let me just encourage you as you're coming out of COVID and all the restrictions uh, to get back to church and to get back to church as often as you can so that you can meet together and pray together and be prayed for uh, by your pastor and by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the context which will start to put more water in the dry wells of our prayer lives. Get to church. Okay, number two, the mood of prayer. The mood of prayer. Thankfulness and joy. Thankfulness and joy. Verses three to four. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. <clears throat> Notice what Paul starts with when he comes to talk about prayer and how he prays for these Christians in Philippi. He doesn't start with the request and then end with some thanks. Rather, he starts with thanks, verses 3 to 4, and he ends with request in verses 9 to 11. And that's the challenge for us, isn't it? When we pray, what do we pray first? We tend to pray, Lord, please help me with this. Lord, please bless that person. Please bless this endeavor. It's quite hard at times to begin with, Lord, thank you. Lord, I bless you. Lord, I praise you. Well, Paul doesn't approach God like we approach the target delivery man on the other end of the phone where we just read out the list of things we want delivered to our house and then we say, oh, and thank you very much at the end. First, we make our request to the delivery man and then we thank him when he delivers it. But Christian prayer is the reverse. First, we begin with thanks. Then we begin with requests. <clears throat> and that order of prayer reveals the mood of prayer. It reveals the manner of our prayers. Paul begins his prayers with joy and thankfulness. Now, why is that surprising? Well, just remember where Paul is sitting. He's not sitting on a balcony, sitting, sipping a Coke, overlooking the Mediterranean. He's in a prison cell, in a dungeon, suffering for the gospel with a possible death sentence ahead of him. Yet his mood is one of thanksgiving and joy. If anyone has a right to be sad and somber as he prays, it's Paul. Yet he doesn't. He prays with joy. 
Later, he exhorts the Philippian church to rejoice always. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Joy is one of the characteristics of the Christian life. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, joy, and more joy. That's the mood of Christianity. I've got that joy, joy, joy down deep in my heart. That's the vibe of the Christian life. Monday morning, wherever you are, whether you're at home or work, whether you're in a lecture, whether you're at school or on a train, wherever you go, there will be a vibe, a mood in the place. People and places give off moods and vibes. I remember when I used to be a physical therapist in a hospital in Northern Ireland. I remember the vibe on Monday mornings was very different to the vibe on Friday afternoons. Do you know that feeling at work? Monday mornings, the faces are all a bit glum. The chat is a bit mellow. The smiles are a bit less. But Friday afternoons, smiles are on the faces. The banter's flowing. The jokes are coming. Everyone's smiling. Why? Because it's Friday. We've got that Friday feeling. Two different vibes, whether it's Monday morning or Friday afternoon, there is a vibe. And it's the same with our prayers. Whether we like it or not, our prayers give off a vibe. They reflect a mood. Prayer is a moody activity. It either gives off a good mood or a bad mood. It either gives off a joyful mood or a glum mood. Here's a good uh, litmus test if someone overheard you praying. How would they describe the mood of your prayers? Someone walked into your church prayer meeting and listened for five minutes. How would they describe the vibe of the prayer meeting? Our private prayers, our church prayers, they give off a vibe And that's the challenge of Paul's prayer here. The vibe and the mood of his prayers are one, is one of thankfulness and joy. Well, you may be asking, well, my prayers aren't very joyful, but I would like them to be, so how can I make them more joyful? How can I pray with more thanksgiving? Well, Paul gives two reasons. Uh, in the next point for why we can pray with thankfulness and joy. So we've seen the context of prayer as Christian community. The mood of prayer is thankfulness and joy. And then third, the motivation of prayer is fellowship and confidence. The motivation of prayer is fellowship and confidence, verses 5 and 6. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see the two reasons for why Paul prays with thankfulness and joy? Because of your partnership in the gospel and because I'm sure that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul has two reasons for joyful praying. Fellowship, partnership, verse 5, and confidence, verse 6. Now, when we hear that word uh, fellowship or partnership, uh, we tend to think of uh, talking to someone after church, 
uh, eating food with him, drinking a bit of juice, uh, and having a biscuit, having a cookie after church. That's fellowship after church. Okay, but fellowship uh, is so much more than that. Uh, the word was used in the first century of business partnerships. And partnership is the best way of describing what Paul is thankful for here. The Philippians have been partners with him. They didn't just enjoy a wee chat with him after church whenever he was in town. No, they were partners with him. I don't know if you've heard the saying that sometimes churches can be like buses. One person doing all the driving and everyone else just sitting there with another person collecting the money. Well, the churches that Paul planted were full of partners, not passengers. Note what is note what it is that formed this partnership. Uh, it wasn't a shared interest. You know, as you start university or a new job, you're talking to someone and you have that moment where you say, what, you too? You also like that music? Or you also support that sports team? So do I. And from there, you strike up a friendship or a partnership in your supporting of the team. That's not what's going on here. It's not a shared interest that they have. Neither is it a shared experience, though that will certainly be true in verse 7, partakers with me of grace. No, what is shared here is a shared truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 5? Because of your partnership in the gospel, there's a shared interest in an objective truth and a shared vision for getting the gospel out. The Philippians were people who worked together with Paul for the spread of the gospel. They believed the same truth, shared the same goal, held the same vision. So they rolled up their sleeves and they got stuck into ministry alongside Paul. Uh, In this regard, the Philippians were exemplary. Chapter 1, verse 19, they prayed for Paul. Chapter 1, verse 27, 28, they proclaimed the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 30, they suffered with Paul for the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 25, Paul sent Epaphroditus to them. Oh, sorry, they sent Epaphroditus to Paul to minister to his needs. Chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, they sent him gifts and help for his needs. That is a picture of fellowship, of partnership, not cups of tea after church, but partnership in preaching, in pastoral visits, in gifts of money. This is why he prays with thankfulness and joy because of their long-term partnership with him in the gospel. And it is that kind of partnership which caused Paul's ministry to flourish. Without the Philippian church, Paul could not have done what he did. If you study church, church history behind some of the great movements in church history, there were gospel partners, uh, sometimes called patrons, often unseen and unknown. If I was to mention the name, Humphrey Monmouth. Does he mean anything to you? Humphrey Monmouth. Hands up if you've heard of Humphrey Monmouth. Just one hand I saw. Well, uh, if it were not for Humphrey Monmouth, we would not have an accurate translation of the New Testament in English today. John Wycliffe translated the Bible from Latin to English, but the first person to give us a translation from the New Testament 
Greek text, and therefore an accurate translation, was William Tyndale. But who was Henry Monmouth then? Humphrey Monmouth, sorry. Well, Humphrey Monmouth was William Taylor's, William Tyndale's partner in the gospel. Uh, Monmouth was a rich cloth merchant who heard William Tyndale preach one time and said to him, come and have dinner with me. And he, over dinner, said to Tyndale, what do you want to do with your life? And Tyndale said, well, I'd like to translate the Bible, the New Testament, into English and set uh, England alight with the gospel because people can have the Bible, the New Testament, in their own language instead of Latin. They can have it in English. And Humphrey Monmouth said, well, stay with me. I'll pay you a salary. You're going to free board and translate the Bible into English. And so he started doing that and then eventually had to flee from England to Germany and live with Martin Luther in Wittenberg. And he completed the English translation of the Bible in Wittenberg. But the problem was he needed to get the Bible back to England and back out into the English-speaking world. Well, Henry Monmouth was a rich cloth merchant who owned a merchant um, army of ships. And so he smuggled the English Bible back into England on his cloth ships, and he smuggled it into the English-speaking world through his ships. We've all heard of William Tyndale translated the Bible, but have you ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth? But if it wasn't for Humphrey Monmouth, we wouldn't have our English New Testaments. There's a lovely example of partnership in the gospel. Humphrey Monmouth was like an Epaphroditus to Paul or to William Tyndale. How do you think William Tyndale would have prayed upon every remembrance of Humphrey Monmouth? He would have prayed with thankfulness and joy. Why? Because Monmouth was his partner in the gospel, in advancing the gospel. So partners in the gospel pray with thankfulness and joy for each other. This should be the mood of our prayers for fellow Christians, for partners in ministry, for missionaries on the field that we partner. We should be giving thanks for them and they for us. The vibe and mood of our prayers should be one of overflowing joy as we partner with them. Why? Because the basis of thankful and joyful prayer is gospel partnership. But there's a second reason that Paul gives us. It's there in verse 6. There's gospel partnership in verse 5. And then verse 6, there's God's saving work or confidence in God's saving work. Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work here refers to the work of grace in the lives of the Philippians, in people like Lydia, in the slave girl, prostitute, in the Philippian jailer, and many others. What God starts, he finishes. And this is a cause for much joy and thanks in Paul's prayer for them. It's what motivates him for prayer. God doesn't do half jobs. God's not like us. He doesn't start a job and then forget to finish it. God's saving work in our lives will be completed, as Paul says in verse 6, at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why Paul prays with 
thanksgiving and joy because of their partnership in the gospel, verse 5, and secondly, because he is confident that God's going to finish the work of grace in their lives. God's ability to finish his work that he begins propels Paul to pray for them with joy and thankfulness. Well, we've seen three things so far. The context of prayer, Christian community. The mood of prayer, thankfulness and joy. Uh, The motivation of prayer, fellowship or partnership and confidence. And then fourth and finally, the passion of prayer. The passion of prayer, Christ's affection. Christ's affection, verses 7 to 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Remember earlier, the partnership between Paul and the Philippians was the objective truth of the the gospel and the shared vision to see the gospel proclaimed. But here, it's a shared experience of grace and suffering together for the gospel. And this is a good lesson in the theology of what Christian fellowship or partnership looks like. It's unity around the objective truth of the gospel, and it's unity around a subjective experience of God's grace in our lives as we suffer for that gospel. Now, in modern-day Christianity, there can be a pull towards a false dichotomy. Either Christians unite around the truth, and they start to forget about the experience of God's grace in their lives, or they unite around experience, and they're not so much interested in the truth. Well, Paul presents us with a wonderful example of both-and fellowship. It is both objective truth and subjective experience that unites Christians together. And it is the latter that causes Paul to speak in rather astonishing terms in verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you notice how uh, astonishing Paul's words are? The word affection is a a deep feeling word. It's connected to a person's uh, bowels. Someone wrote to me, Uh, If someone wrote that to me, I think they'd have a problem uh, with exaggeration. I I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. My my bowels, my kidneys are groaning for you. I uh, would think they're a bit weird. But that's how Paul writes. But the question is, where does he get this kind of affection from? Because uh, We tend not to feel this kind of affection or we get embarrassed by it. Well, notice where he gets it from. It's the affection of Christ, of Christ Jesus. It's not Paul's affection that he conjures up himself. It's Christ's affection for the Philippians that Paul has taken upon himself, that he has absorbed. The answer to a dry well is not pumping harder. It's asking someone else to pour in some water. If we lack affection for other Christians, then the answer is not to work harder at the affection for other Christians. 
The answer is to go to Christ and to ask Him to give us His affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the ways in which Christ gives us a deeper affection for others is by being more intimately involved with those who are united to Christ. We only cultivate a deeper affection for brothers and sisters in Christ if we have a shared experience of grace, if we have a shared cause of suffering for the gospel. Uh, many years ago, when I was studying for my uh, PhD in Cambridge, a fellow PhD student and I were both under a lot of stress as we came to the final two, three months of having to write our 100,000-word thesis. Uh, we were both well behind our deadlines. And so he and I would work in the library from morning till midnight and pass each other in the corridors of the library, have a short conversation, encourage each other, and then get back to our desks. It was two or three months of Colin and I having this very intense suffering experience. We suffered together uh, during those months. <clears throat> Some time later, after we'd both submitted our theses, it was a year later, I uh, came to America for a conference, and we met each other, and we just saw each other, looked at each other, smiled, laughed, and walked towards each other and gave each other the biggest hug. And we both just laughed about this experience. Do you, do you remember those days in the library for three months when we didn't know what we were writing? Um, that was the experience. And to this day, if I see Colin, I would go over and give him a big hug because we had this shared experience of suffering together. That's what helps you create this affection for one another when you suffer together for the sake of the gospel. So those are some ways to draw out that affection for each other. Go to Christ and ask Him to give you the same affection that He has for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then also be connected to brothers and sisters in Christ so that when you suffer with them, you will start to develop a very natural, organic affection for them. Uh, we're never going to pray uh, with such affection for each other unless we actually enter into more fellowship with each other. Well, I started this sermon by asking you the awkward personal question, how is your prayer life going? Well, Paul gives us four aspects of prayer that can help us. <clears throat> the context of prayer, Christian community, we need to be intimately involved in our local church. The mood of prayer, thankfulness and joy. The motivation of prayer, fellowship and confidence. And now forth, the passion of prayer, Christ's affection. And my prayer is that these points might help us with the dry wells of our prayer lives that we experience from time to time. May these points, by God's grace, pour water back into our wells as we seek to pray to God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ for our brothers and sisters who are partners with us and with whom we share that wonderful experience of God's grace and with whom we suffer together for that same gospel and that same Christ. Let me pray for us as we close. <clears throat> 
Father, your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It is also a mirror to our souls. And as we've reflected on the prayer of Paul to the Philippians and for the Philippians, we are convicted of our own prayer lives. We are challenged as to how we should pray. But we're also encouraged by your Spirit to improve our prayers. So we ask, Father, that by your grace you would forgive us for our prayerlessness, and that by your Holy Spirit you would sanctify us and motivate us to pray more frequently, to pray better prayers, and to pray with thankfulness and joy for the partnership we have with one another as we share that experience of your grace. Give to us, we ask, Father, that affection of Christ for one another. May it be genuine not superficial, not a facade. May it be real and organic and natural as we suffer together for the gospel and for our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.